Well, we have a very special guest today, Dr. Rahul Sharma, who is the founder of Funkadesi, sharing a special improvisational live musical piece on the sitar, as well as asking the question, how do we insist that we all belong? Sharing his double migration story in his family and lineage. And here he talks about being an artist, a self-absorbed and selfless endeavor, and shares his chai recipe, which is not a tea recipe, but a concoction for how to be in life. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Embody Podcast a show about remembering and embodying your true nature, inner wisdom, embodied healing, and self-love. My name is Candace Wu, and I'm a holistic healing facilitator, intuitive coach, and artist sharing my personal journey of vulnerability, offering meditations and guided healing support, and having co-creative conversations with healers and wellness practitioners from all over the world. This episode is sponsored by the Embodied Healing Group that happens once a month. This is a special group for two to four people online that want to have soul and body support through the month. Whether you're yearning to get in touch with your deeper inner wisdom or have some healing with the pieces that are challenging in your life or to strengthen your vision and what you're going towards in your life, this group might be for you. So feel free to check it out at candicewoo.com slash Patreon. You can also find the links in the show notes that are connected to this episode at candicewoo.com slash Rahul, R-A-H-U-L. It's a real pleasure to have Dr. Rahul Sharma on the show today. Dr. Sharma is one of my previous professors at the Illinois School of Professional Psychology, where I studied clinical psychology. When I was in school, I really admired the way he was able to talk about the difficult things, talk about power and equality, what was happening in the room with each of us in terms of how we felt what aspects of us and our identity were coming into the storyline of who we were in that room or how we felt in life. And he created a very safe space with music, with drumming, with bringing in other ways of connecting that support a universal connecting on the soul level, on the heart level that I really admired. Rahul is an accomplished and passionate consultant, artist, experiential learning innovator, psychologist, and expert in the areas of diversity, equity, inclusion, leadership, and growth. His biggest focus is the recognition of the need to create space, unique spaces for people to grow, produce, and flourish, and to find their own creative voice as well. I have always felt supported in his presence and his invitation for all of the parts of us to show up, for all of us to belong in the space together, and for our inner parts of us to uh, come forward to the table as a, a valuable part of us is so healing. So grab a tea or coffee or something lovely to drink. A chai, perhaps, as you tune into this episode on his sharing of his recipe for chai and enjoy this music and this lovely experience that can bring you in touch with your beauty, your artistry, your sense of 
belonging or your heart's aching for belonging and the insistence of life that we are all belonging, the insistence that we are all human and have a place. So I hope this episode inspires you just as it did for me and gives you a connection with more of yourself. Well, this episode is coming at a very poignant time for me because I'm stepping into more enjoyment of beauty and feeling the wholeness of beauty, not just the pleasure, not just uh, the good things as we might label them, the things that are pleasurable to experience, but the wholeness of life, finding the beauty in all of the experience, all of the challenging, sad, upsetting, angering, as well as pleasurable and delightful, joyful, blissful feelings, holding that all with the sense of amusement and play and um, treasuring the moment is the beauty that I'm after. And this episode with Rahul is truly inspiring to me right now because I'm also stepping into more of my own artistry to allow my inner artist to capture and um, receive inspiration and let that flow through me. Let that have its own life. And it's just so inspiring to hear Rahul's story as well as his music and to hear the the roots and the intentions behind his music. Uh, it's very exciting. Hey, Rahul. Hey there. Welcome to the show. Um, this is really an honor. I don't know how this conversation is going to go. Uh, <laughs> I hope it goes well. <laughs> I, hope I hope well. I hope so too. I, I, I can't imagine it not. I just am so um, curious about what's going to open up. And um, you have your sitar there with you. Yes, I do. I guess we'll just start by introducing you a little bit. And right now I'll just say that uh, you are my previous professor and now a colleague and you are an artist, a consultant, a speaker, psychologist, and what I have loved about our interactions is the feeling of inclusiveness that I have around you and uh, the recognition of just all these different parts of ourselves in one, one space together. And many interactions of you bringing your artistry to the healing work and, and the therapy work that you were teaching me and other students, like bringing in drum circles and just opening up these parts of who you are. So welcome. I just wanted to start with a piece of how I know you. Oh, that's very sweet. And it's, I'm really glad to get that feedback that that was coming across sort of um, how much my identity and just what I bring in terms of the, the art comes through even when I'm teaching uh, clinical psychology, because for me, those are very integrated. Yeah. Well, I guess I'd like to start with something that really caught me when I was reading a little bit into your bio, is that your story sounds like your your family ancestry and lineage story of double migration mm -hmm. really informs how you show up in the world and your work. And I'd love to hear that story as much or as little as you want to share here. Oh, you know, thank you for asking. Um, so yeah, my ethnic heritage is, 
Punjabi. So both my ancestry on both sides, my, my father's side, and my mother's side originally comes from Punjab, Jammu Kashmir in uh, uh, Northern India. Mm-hmm. And uh, my father's father wrote down his life story the year I was born. And uh, when, you know, for me as somebody who identifies as Indian American, you know, a lot of Indian Americans go back to India if they have the means every year, every two years, every three years. And for me, uh, it was going back to Kenya, sometimes three to six months at a time growing up, uh, the best part being missing Mm -hmm. loads of school. And um, (laughs) so, yeah. That was that was quite enjoyable. But, um, you know, it wasn't till 1992 I graduated college and I went to India for the first time. And I also got a hold of my grandfather's life story that he had written, like I was saying, when, when uh, the year I was born. The stories just blew me away. And so, if I may, I can, I'd like to share the story of my grandfather. I would love to hear it. Yeah. So, you know, growing up in rural Punjab with the British having uh, colonized India and Kenya, he uh, didn't see any economic prospects for him. In fact, um, you know, growing up in the village, he didn't even have a, a primary education. So one day he's visiting a classroom and he must be maybe 10 years old. And the schoolmaster sees my father and sees that he's standing in this classroom with these younger boys in class. So he assumed, you know, my grandfather must be from a later grade and asked the boys to ask him a question. My grandfather didn't know the answer. And the boys started laughing. And my grandfather came home and he was incredibly humiliated And his parents, my great-grandparents, were so hurt to see him like that. They pleaded with the school, can we find a way Mm. to give him a basic education? So he started going to school. Mm. Fast forward a few years, he hears about a distant relative that had found some economic prospect working as an indentured servant for the British on the railway in, in East Africa. So he was set this is what I'm going to do. And his parents were against it. They were against it. And he just was determined to go. So the day he was leaving, my great-grandparents took him to a remote part of the village where they had kept their ancestral savings. And it must have been like $1.50, like very little money, but they gave it all to Mm -hmm. him and said, go, you know, you have our blessing. Just, you know, wishing you the best. Wow. So he ends up working for a Sikh fuel contractor, and Bishan Singh is the guy's name. And one day, my grandfather and some other laborers are walking across the railway, and they're stopped by a British military officer, Captain McStead. And uh, my understanding is Captain, and this is my recollection from reading this story, is that Captain McStead said, hey, you know, I want you all to work for the military. We'll pay you better. And my grandfather said, well, we can't. Um, we're under contract to work for Bishan Singh and, uh, for three years. Mm-hmm. And, and this military officer got 
was infuriated. And he said, I, I demand to see this Bishan Singh. Hmm. And of course, Bishan Singh hadn't done anything wrong. He just had this contract. But uh, I, I think yeah. that this British military officer just, you know, like, who is this guy to sort of get in my way? So in the public square, he grabbed Bishan Singh by the beard and shook him violently and just abused him in public. And Bishan Singh was so freaked out that he just, you know, didn't want to be seen in public after that. So uh, soon afterwards, the Germans blow up a portion of the railway. And this Captain McStad blames Bishan Singh, my grandfather, and all the laborers of harboring with the enemy. And they round up uh, all of them. Three of my uh, grandfather's friends are shot. They're executed without a trial. And uh, my grandfather was lucky where he got, uh, there was a change in the chief magistrate, the judge. And so my grandfather got a trial. And uh, these uh, military officers stopped my grandfather and said, look, some of your friends are already dead. Why don't you just say you guys did it? If you say anything else, we'll kill oh. you. So my grandfather gets into the courtroom and he says, these people want me to put innocent Indian names to shame and I'll never do it. You can do whatever you want with me, but wow. I'll never do it. And then uh, a doctor stood up and testified saying, I don't think we can kill him. He doesn't even look like he's 18 years old. And uh, so what they did was they mm -hmm. sentenced my grandfather to 10 years hard labor. And uh, he ended up serving three and got out after three years. So wow. that was obviously just reading that and realizing what my grandfather had gone through and then eventually made his way from the coast of Kenya to Nairobi to work, uh, you know, open up his grocery store and was able to send... Um, my father and a couple of his siblings to England for schooling. And that's where my father got his PhD, you know, had met my mother. My mother was pursuing science and they were living in Nairobi. My father was lecturing at the University of Nairobi and my sisters were born there. And a guy comes up to my father, says, uh, you know, how would you like a job at Western Michigan University? And my father mm. was like, Let's go. Let's do this. So so my brother and I were born in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And as I sometimes tell my students, uh, you know, my sisters were born in Nairobi and I was born in mm -hmm. Kalamazoo. And I'll never forgive my sisters for that. Not to knock <laughs> the Midwest, but my personal opinion is it's a little bit cooler to be born in Nairobi. But seriously, that, that that's yeah. just that legacy and that history. That's a part of. And then, of course, you know me growing up in a different era in the Midwest, but also realizing that I come from this family background where this is our ethnic history, but also this is uh, where we relocated to and, and, and just interacting with different people um, through these different experiences helped to form my interests and the way I, you know, as you say, show up in the world. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a really incredible story. How did you feel when you when you read it, your grandpa's story? That just sounds like such a really interesting experience. You know, not everyone has a piece of writing from their ancestor. Yeah. Well, it, it's an incredible feeling. And by the way, I don't know if you can hear the dog 
<laughs> barking at the mailman. <laughs> I, the can, I can a little. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's yeah, not it's you. Right. It's not your question. I just want to assure you that. Um, but, uh, well, one of the things that, that, well, obviously that had a huge impact on me, just that story. And just, you know, thinking about the, like, what if my, what if those kids hadn't laughed at my grandfather and my fa- grandfather didn't get that education? Would I be born in India? Would I not have existed because the stars didn't align that way? You know, what happened? Obviously, you know, we know what would happen if my grandfather had uh, been executed. Um, but but that palpable awareness about, you know, uh, issues of oppression in my relatively recent family history, I think that, that that's had a big, big impact on me. But also I was reading this at a time, Candice, when... I was going through my own identity crisis because being born and raised Mm. in Kalamazoo, Michigan, I think our family has always had a strong identity of being proud of who we are and proud of our uniqueness and what we bring to the table. But at the same time, I think I grew up in an era and in a way where I didn't embrace thinking of myself as a person of color. Or I didn't think consciously about how issues of race were impacting me and the way I thought about myself. So um, this story meant so much in terms of, oh, yeah, I'm not from the United States. My history, my people's history is really rich. And there's a lot of, you know, really intense, tragic stories. There's some amazing stories. And the thing is, my grandfather visited Hardwar, which is where they have, for generations, the most elaborate bookkeeping of genealogy. You just name the village you're from, and they would bring out books, and they would, you know, list your ancestry. Of course, it, you know it's oh, patriarchal, so it was a lot of male names. But because of the year my mm-hmm. grandfather wrote this down, you know, our, our actual family clan name is Punj, not, not Sharma. So they're listing oh, yeah. my ancestors like Asa Punj, Diala Punj, Ishar Punj, Jahawar Lal Punj, you mm-hmm. know, Lal Chand Punj. And the last name mm-hmm. in that list of nine generations was my name. And so oh. that uh, you can imagine just staring uh, at that manuscript. I was like, whoa. You know, the, the, ninth, the ninth generation yeah. of, of this, this incredible <laughs> list. So that 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 just um, that just rocked me to my core. That feels so powerful and and uh, I don't know opening. Yeah, it definitely created spaces in me that 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 and and it really I think fueled my sense of purpose, you know, and solidified what direction I was going in from college to beyond college. Wow. What a huge transformation because that's, it's so a part of you now, your heritage, who you are, your ethnicity, the culture. Absolutely. At least from where I'm standing. Yeah, no, yeah. no, absolutely. I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And one of the ways in which I, cause I had that moment where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not from the United States. And, and I realized that nobody would really fuss if I just kind of forgot my where I came from. Like, you know, I my nightmare scenario was having great great grandchildren 
that would one day say, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, one I, one of my ancestors was was Indian, not the feather kind, the dot kind, mm. you know, and and yeah, that that sort of snapshot terrified me. So I said, I need to take it upon myself to um, know where I come from. And, you know, I, I played music in high school and in college, so bass guitar and mainly blues, funk, starting to get into reggae a little bit. And then uh, I thought, what better way to reconnect with my culture than with music? So I picked up first the tabla when I visited India for the first time, was studying tabla, which is the Indian uh, percussion instrument. And then uh, then I gravitated towards sitar, which is a North Indian stringed instrument, which I'm holding right now. Yeah. Would you like to play a little something? Oh, my gosh. I thought you'd never ask. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, I would, <laughs> I would love to play. <laughs> yeah. I just exactly. can't wait. <laughs> All right. So uh, just to set it up, it's a bit, you know, like I love playing bass guitar. I love playing guitar. And, it, you know, I think bass guitar brings out the funk in me. The uh, acoustic guitar brings yeah. out the country western twang in me. I sort of like another aspect of my identity because I did grow up here and uh but the sitar mm -hmm. sort of you know allows me to express myself in a different way so if it's all right I'm just gonna do a little improv I don't know what I'm gonna play yet you know because part of the the whole thing about sitar it's an Im improvisatory musical form the only thing is you kind of need to stick within the the set of notes that that you're you know deciding upon playing so the improvisation mm -hmm. works best when it stays within the rag, the structure. And I almost think of it like a spirit or as the great Amjad Ali Khan, uh, Ustad Amjad Ali Khan said in a radio interview, a rag is like a personality. And he says, I wish I could live more than one lifetime because it would take more than one lifetime to truly express the depth of just one rag, which I thought was like, that was mind-blowing. So in my humble way, I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to share, but this is for your Embody podcast inspired by what we're talking about right now.
was beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I loved it. It was just delightful. I feel so at peace right now. <laughs> Nap time. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, my eyes were closing. I was just oh. like swaying my body. <laughs> and now, as you mentioned, the rag, I remember you talking about that in grad school mm-hmm. and the personality of it. And how do you tune into what's the right rag or sense into that when you begin? Well, you know, that's such a great question because um, from an Indian classical perspective, they say that these rags correspond to different times of the day, different seasons. You know, this rag should only be played between this time and this time of the day. And they say it's scientifically based, you know, that uh, the frequencies were determined this way. But then Mm -hmm. I asked myself, well, if I'm living in Chicago, and I asked this of a Indian classical musician at a question and answer, you know, mm-hmm. and these rags were formed in India, do they translate across the world? You know, do I, if do I play the rag that was supposed to be played early morning in India when it's early morning here, or am I supposed to do it at the time zone it was <laughs> in in India? So all of that's to say, um, I think there is something to it, but I also think studying other forms of music like blues and jazz and reggae and everything, there's an authentic frequency. Like, for example, jazz musicians have a different set of guidelines. So when you have a jazz musician jamming with an Indian musician, one of them is really sticking within this melodic structure. And then the jazz musician, the, the Indian musician, the jazz musician is kind of breaking some of those rules, but sticking to other guidelines, right? right. And both of these art forms are valid. So, and to me, that's the, the band that I started over 22 years ago. That's been sort of our dialogue between each other. Our dialectic is is how do we create something that feels authentic if we're crossing genres and not all of the rules line up. Is there a deeper type of authenticity that can be maintained? And so anyway, there's long, you know, and look, this is what happens when you have a psychologist for a musician. I, I, I pontificate (laughs) and, uh, and, and why use five words when I can use 500? Right. Um, which is why Carlos, our beloved conga player, always reminds me, less talk, more rock. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, I, I try to live by that sometimes, but most of the time I fail. <laughs> um, well, I'm feeling but, with you. But, <laughs> Excuse me. I'm feeling with you I'm because good. Oh, good. Good. my mind just went into like Ayurveda. And, you know, when you were saying like oh, the yeah. time zones yeah. and then I was like in my mind trying to sync up with like the different meridians of the body and the energy channels and timing of the day and the, and the doshas. Is that something that's in your, in that, in alignment? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, it, yeah, absolutely. To give you a different answer to the question, I mm-hmm. think, and this is where I, th- I do think, you know, my interest in psychology comes into play. And like, to me, improvising as an artist, it's this balance between what am I feeling? So a very personal and in a way self-absorbed kind of um, what's going to do it for me? What do I want to express? Combined with a sensitivity and a sensibility about 
what is needed in the moment. Mm. What's the tone that needs to be struck, which to me requires attention to the the environment, attention to um, not only what's happening inside yourself, but if you're playing with other musicians, what is their vibe and how can you complement each mm-hmm. other? Or if you're sitting in front of an audience, we we played at City Winery last night and we did the same thing where we did some improvisation. We didn't know what we were going to be playing until we played it. Part of it was, what's my sense of what the room needs right now? So I've always been struck by that, that that combination of like being an artist in some ways is simultaneously a very self-absorbed and very selfless endeavor. Yeah, that really makes sense to me. And with both this and the other piece of what you're saying, how do you blend the different sounds and this the perhaps rules of that sound genre or artistry so that there is some common or some sort of amalgamation of it? And this just lines up with the whole theme of Punky Daisy, insisting we all belong. One family. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, it was you right on your homework. website. And I was like, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is absolutely what yeah. I see and feel when I, uh, I haven't been to your concert yet, but I've seen you guys on YouTube. And it just feels like that. Mm, yeah. So I would say this, um, that piece kind of ties in with what um, I've been calling my chai <laughs> recipe. You know, I, I always tell people, look, you know, I'm Indian, I got to represent, so I'm going to share with nice. you my chai recipe. And then I thoroughly disappoint people when I let them know that chai is actually just an acronym. <laughs> so it's C-H-A-I. And to me, it's compassion, humility, accountability, and insistence. Mm. So, um, and I, I, you know, I've been reflecting on this as as things that can be helpful for us to, as healers in psychology, but also, uh, especially when we're thinking about issues of diversity and social justice, obviously compassion, you know, guided by that uh, phrase by Wendy Mass, be kind, for everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing mm-hmm. about, right? And, and I think when we, we never fully understand another person's context, but there's a lot mm-hmm. that happens when we lead with compassion. And, and um, the H is humility. Humility to me is sorely missing in a lot of spaces, in my in in my humble opinion. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think people get defensive when they feel like they're being taken down a notch. Well, who are you to say X about me? Who are you to call me out on this? And I think there's some validity validity to that. We're living in an era, well, not even just now, but you know, I, I was at University of Michigan in the era of identity mm. politics when it was in its heyday. And even then, you know, um, and now there's there's this sense of, well, this is what this is what's wrong with you. This is what you need to be doing. You know, social media really uh, exacerbates that. And I participate in that sometimes. And it's, <laughs> you know, and then I don't like myself afterwards where it's like, Man, how much of this was me really just right. needing to take this person down a notch? Yeah. You know? Um, so so to me, the humility is, are you as willing to hold yourself accountable to the same degree that you're expecting someone else mm. to be accountable to you? 
to me, that's that that's the humility. And of course, that jumps right into um, the next one. Mm-hmm. A is accountability. You know, that phrase that we talk about right. a lot, intent versus impact. You know, when interacting with somebody, are you more focused on your intentions and trying to defend your intentions? Or are you able to clear yourself out and hold yourself accountable to the impact you had on other people? So I think that's yeah. that's another piece of it. And then that last part, which <laughs> once again, that was my long-winded way of responding to your your thing about like insisting. So that to me, the I is the insistence. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Wait, what was that question? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought I was going to get a cup of tea here. <laughs> like a little recipe for a cup of tea. <laughs> Uh, yeah, where's that? By the way, I do. I make a kick-ass cup of chai as well. So there's always that uh, uh, option That's, as well. There's always that for next time. Yeah, there's the next you time. Know, I have a cup of water here. It's not quite the same. <laughs> That's so funny. But um, th- so the insistence is like, it's nice to be compassionate. It's nice to be humble. But we are living in a world with unjust systems are always in operation. And, you know, that whole thing is like, it's not possible to be a non-racist. You need to be anti-racist because to recognize that racism is operating at every level, uh, it's so important Mm -hmm. that you are active in saying that, like, you know, if you're silent and you're like, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm just going to keep my head down or I'm going to make sure I don't say or do bad things, that that's not enough. So insistence can mean a few things, but one thing is insisting on speaking to things that need to be spoken to. Sometimes, you know, nobody brings up that that might be sexist, that might be homophobic, that might be whatever. And it's that silence that sort of ends up colluding with this unequal power system and Mm -hmm. keeps things the way they are. So to me, the insistence is like you can sometimes you got to make sure you you put things on the table or you make sure that you keep things on the table when they need to be addressed. So insisting on each other's full humanity. I mean, I can go off on (laughs) this whole thing, but like, you know, I think about one of the insidious ways and I will apparently um, the one of the insidious ways in which oppression operates in my observation is that some people get the default benefit of full humanity, right? Whiteness, maleness, heterosexuality, all of these things where you're in the center of that power structure, right? And again, I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about particular individuals. I'm talking about systems of, of privilege. And I think it's invisible to many of us, right? This sense of, well, of course, so-and-so gets the benefit of, of complexity and full humanity. Um, so to me, the insistence is insisting uh, on that full humanity for everybody. I think that's so important. And, you know, we, we hear about compassion a lot. Mm-hmm. Not, not to like, I love this combination of chai here. Um, <laughs> humility, a little less so, but. It's delicious. Right. It's delicious. Accountability. We hear of that a lot. But insistence, I don't, it's not something that's just quite present to me, but actually it has been lately. And now that you bring it up, it reminds me of my time in Ireland recently, uh, last January, where, um, or this January, where I was working with horses very closely. 
and mm. uh, not riding, but working with horsemanship and leadership with horses and interaction with them. And insistence came up a lot. And I bring this up now because it was such a challenging thing if I maybe got a little activated or something wasn't on the inside was happening for me to insist on something in the interaction with the horse, but also be responsive to what the horse was bringing and how they were and and not lose sight of what I was insisting on. And then also adjusting if the insistence was too much, like a, right. know, five steps ahead of where we were but insisting on something to be learned. <laughs> Absolutely. It sounds like, yeah, mutual accountability. I mean, there, you know, mm -hmm. saying what it is that you need to say or, 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 or indicating what you need to indicate, but also leaving space for uh, what you're getting back. Right. Yeah. And I think it's a really challenging thing. This is just what I'm seeing, especially on social media where we might be holding each other accountable, but doing it in a way that's just repeating the cycle of the hurt, maybe coming with like an attack or it may be perceived mm -hmm. as an attack. It's so challenging. It's challenging. You know, when, when I hear mm -hmm. you say that, I, it makes me think, um, which is a whole other conversation, but a model that I find very helpful in both just general psychology work, but also in, in thinking about the complexities of diversity, social justice issues, is um, the mm -hmm. internal family systems model. Yes, I wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, but hearing you say that, Candice, you know, there is a language or, or, or I, should, I should say a process we can follow where you, you acknowledge that you have different parts mm -hmm. of yourself, of, of yourself. And each of us do. And how do you take responsibility for those parts without having to feel like that one part of you is the sum total of you, mm -hmm. you know? So how do you communicate that a part of you is feeling hurt? A part of you is feeling angry. A part of you is feeling attacked by another person. And, you know, I find this helpful. I just this morning was doing couples work where that was a part of what we were doing was being able to acknowledge that we have different parts of ourselves and how do you communicate through that? And again, according to the model, compassion is one of the key ingredients. Isn't it such a relief to be able to communicate that way? It's because when we say, I don't know, I'm feeling X, Y, or Z, it's, it's just much more complex than that. And to feel like we have to be all in one basket like that is just so reducing because we have all these different parts of us that it's such a relief to say, oh, this one part is feeling this, but this one is not, or this one is feeling something else. And it just opens up the whole thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to go back to belonging, because I think it's such a beautiful thing that um, you're bringing forward and your band is bringing forward. You have the question that you carry, how do we increase a sense of belonging to each other? And what have you found? What... Mm -hmm in your experience, has been supportive to that? I know it's a big <sighs> question. It's like... <laughs> yeah. No, well, hey, look, the band's been together over 22 yes, years. Yes, so what have you found? And uh, <laughs> there, there's... In 22 years. What have we found? So, yes, I can tell you. I'll, I'll tell you this. 
Well, I had nothing yet. <laughs> Candace, I'm waiting till year 23. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay, no year. problem. Compassion. But I think. Humility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, exactly. Exactly. But um, I, I would say, I think there's been this shared vibe amongst members of the band. You know, and of course, a part of me, there's, there we go with our parts. Mm-hmm. A part of me would love to take all the credit for this. And, and, and I will say, I feel like, yeah, there's definitely some things that I saw as priorities and a tone that I wanted to set. But to be honest, you know, I got so much more something so much bigger from each band member, which was amazing. But I think this shared sense of we're going to accept if I'm, if I come from my Indian context, someone else comes from a African-American, you know, Jamaican, Latino, whatever, you know, cultural context, this recognition that, you know what, I'm not going to second guess the wisdom of your cultural mm. context. I'm going, in fact, not only am I going to tolerate it, not only am I going to accept it, but I am going to cherish it. I'm going to embrace it as something that, you know, I don't want to co-opt it. I don't want to, you know, uh, appropriate it, but I want to affirm you and what you're bringing and your artistic self is bringing to the table. And we do that through music. And and I think it's allowed a band of 10 people to stay together 22 mm-hmm. plus years is whoever wants to 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 stop something that feels so affirming. I think there's something about what happens when you don't feel like you have to leave a part of yourself at the door when you come to the table. To get a seat at the table, you need to leave a part of your identity behind. Yeah. To me, Funkadesi is a musical embodiment of, you know, and I, I always talk about this, you know, if we're on stage and all of a sudden the two, you know, Maninder and Inder in the band start singing a Punjabi song and it wasn't part of what we were doing before, to see the rest of the band's natural inclination to just like drop what they're doing and support that and is just, it's a beautiful thing. That is beautiful. So I think there's a space. Yeah, there's a space where we just, just, you know, we affirm each other. We affirm each other's cultural context. We we accept each other as kin. You know, that that's why that phrase, one family, many children, uh, is there. Beautiful. So I, I would say that's one mm-hmm. thing that we learned. I love it. I came across an article recently, I think on LinkedIn, that was had, had a really compelling, uh, you know, model, which was saying, instead of a circle, when we create a community, how about a, a U-shape? Because a U-shape leaves room for for more people to come in, whereas a circle might be intimidating Mm. to some people. And I just immediately thought of the band, you know? Uh, Yeah. And so I I was thinking about it and talking with band members last night and came up with this notion, like, enroll in Funkadesi U. It's shaped like a U because you are welcome. Oh, <laughs> I know it's a little cheesy. I try to sneak that in there. That's great. <laughs> but it fits. Oh yeah, I was going to say last night we we were sound checking for our show and there's an Indian woman that's mm-hmm. I think she was friends or she either worked at City Winery or she was friends with one of the people that was working there and she's just like 
in a daze, just walking to the stage and just like, I think her spirit just leapt out and she just said, you don't know how much I need this. This sounds like home to me, you know? And the fact that we're able to do that for people of many different backgrounds, you know, um, our first college show was January, 1997, University of Chicago co-sponsored by the South Asian Student Association, the Organization of Black Students, the Latin American uh, Cultural Student Groups, and the Persian Cultural Society. And the fact that, first of all, we could, you know, Mm -hmm. do an event that these four groups wanted to co-sponsor together. And then for everybody to walk away saying, ah, that, that reflected me, you know, it's just, you know, it's just a beautiful thing. It's a privilege. The resonance, like to be for both you and your group and everyone involved in experiencing it to be seen in a way or to be felt like you were seen and belong. Yes, to be to be seen, to yes, to be heard, to be affirmed. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautiful. It's such a healing space. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that we have many healers in the band, you know, nurses, physical therapists, ophthalmologists, energy healers, you know, you know, it it feels every time we play a show, it feels like, yeah, and again, I don't want to sound overblow what we're doing or anything, but I'm just saying what it feels like. It feels like a cleansing when we play. And the kind of uh, connection that happens with an audience is, it feels pretty special. It's amazing. Well, I can't wait to come out to a show. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, I know. I don't know, even know why I haven't been yet. But um, thank you for sharing all that. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, Rahul, where are you now in your journey of yourself and of Oof. life? You know, as Aside from these pieces of artistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the first thing that comes to mind is I turned 50 this May. So um, oh, wow. thinking a lot about where I've been and what, where I'm heading. So I am married. I have two children, a 10th grade daughter and an 8th grade son. We moved to Evanston three years ago. And really enjoying being a part of the community here, in particular, seeing my children find their place. So there's a lot of meaning for me in seeing my children follow their passion and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and my life partner and I staying close to what we are passionate about, what gives us meaning. So life is really good, you know? Um, And I think it's become more and more clear to me. We we haven't really talked about this, um, but last few years, really that, that integration of healing and work that needs to be done around diversity and social justice, inclusion, equity, and music have been, coming together in a very meaningful way for me Mm, merging yeah Mm. so it started with uh the 
the band playing the while well, I insisted that the band play the multicultural summit, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, APA's uh, the all the big wigs in the field of multicultural psychology. They had, you know, put together this oh. conference every other January. And I went to one in Seattle. My colleague, Charles Davis, Dr. Davis told me about this conference that I should be going to. And the first one I went to, I was just blown away by it. And so I was like, you know, they had this part of it called the elders ceremony, where instead of calling it a lifetime achievement award, you know, I felt like it was, this is so much more of a culturally meaningful way of honoring people's achievements. So it's called the elders ceremony. And was just blown away by that ceremony, so much so that when I found out that the conference was in New Orleans two years later, I just lobbied the heck out of the conference organizer saying, we need the band to come down there and we would love to, we'd be honored mm. to play multicultural drums for the elders ceremony. So we, you know, I ended up doing something I never do, which is take a lot of my own money and fly the band out there because it's hard with the budget that they had you know we did a, a cultural recovery concert at the at the house of blues um, but still you know it was a lot of money in the hole so I was like yeah that was a gamble but but it was that meaningful it was meaningful and they were honoring that year uh Daryl Dwingsu uh Charles Silverstein Bonnie Strickland AJ Franklin Janet Helms, Florence Denmark. And I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted the band to march with our multicultural drums, announce the elders and bring them all into the main hall of like five, 600 people. And then we were going to line mm. up on the side and do a cultural rhythm every time uh, one of them was being honored. So of course, you know, I, it was clear to me what we we're doing, but these folks were like, wait, what's going on? What's happening? So all of a sudden, we're sh they're being shuffled <laughs> right. into a boiler room closet. And, uh, you know, and these are people that like I use in my class, the classes I teach of like, you know, you know, so the, we they sh and and a couple of them are looking kind of annoyed, like, why are we standing here with these drummers? And uh, <laughs> what are we waiting for? Because, you know, I was like, no, no, they can't be seen until they get announced. And, da, da, da. and then finally, Daryl Wing mm -hmm. Sue, uh, you know, the, the literally the godfather of the work on microaggressions, you know, like like first I'm whispering to the musicians like that guy over there, that's. That's week three of my class. That's what I teach during week three. <laughs> and then. Well, yeah, I was and, just thinking that. Then, I was like, I think I know that from right, <laughs> one of your classes right. or something. And Daryl Wing Sue uh, finally kind of says, w what are we doing here anyway? And I just whisper sideways. <laughs> He's week seven. And, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I explain everything. And then the whole thing was such a hit that the president of the American Psych Association, uh, James Bray, comes up to me. He's like, we got to have breakfast tomorrow. And over breakfast the next day, he says, oh. I need your band to set the tone for the APA convention uh, next year. Ooh. So he flew, oh, APA yeah. flew us out to do the opening ceremonies in Toronto. And then two years later, Dr. Melba Vasquez uh, invited us to do the opening ceremonies in, uh, in DC. So my head exploded officially by, you know, those two <laughs> worlds coming together.
And ever since then, Candice, it's been really, um, how do we use experiential multicultural drumming and other arts modalities as vehicles for having much needed difficult dialogues on various topics? So um, just over a year ago, for example, there was a domestic violence conference. It was actually for practitioners that work with male batterers and agencies that work with batterers in, in, in Michigan. And 180 people at the conference, it was in Detroit. And we end up mm -hmm. doing this workshop, an, an experiential plenary where I'm addressing 180 people. And the similar question you asked me, like, what have you guys learned? You know, it's me talking about what the band has learned over our decades together and how it translates to the learning objectives of the conference. And what I said, though, is like, well, instead of telling you what we learned, we want you to experience it. The only catch is mm -hmm. uh, it took us 21 years and we're only giving you an hour. But uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but what we did was we had the yeah. four drummers of the band, the four rhythm ambassadors, take each group of 35 people. In fact, I took a fifth group uh, with tambourines and cowbells because you could never have enough cowbell. And um, yeah, so you 35 people are going to go uh, with Carlos and he's going to teach you the Latin clave rhythm. You 35 people are going to learn the Brazilian samba rhythm. You 35 people are going to learn the West African lamba rhythm. And you 35 people are going to learn the North Indian pangra rhythm. And what we're going to do is after 15 minutes, we're going to collect all the groups into the big room and we're going to try to create the Indo-Afro-Caribbean rhythmic connection. And it mm. was amazing. It was, you know, people came together. I have a video of it on YouTube. And it was just an incredible experience. And the best part was me standing there in a room full of exhilarated folks asking the question, what did you experience? And I wasn't mm. asking for one-word responses, but the crowd just just started giving one word answers like joy, diversity, hope, empowerment, you know, all of these words that they were just, you know, feeling from the moment. And then I got back to the podium and put, uh, put up a few slides and, and was able to connect um, what they were saying and what the experience was to some of the ingredients, you know, like the chai recipe and the different things that we have reflected on over the decades. I can see how that's a huge cleanse. Yeah. It's like the group cleanse within the experience. And that just opens up. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then in the afternoon, we did smaller group sessions. I mean, it was still maybe 30 people. And this is where I integrate what I do with the band in our own style of doing things with a protocol that I got trained on, which is called Health Rhythms by Remo Drums, where they really sort of brought together the best of practices in facilitated drum circle movement work, as well as uh, what music therapists have been doing for decades. So imagine being in a circle, everyone has a drum, and you say, can you share your name? And do you mind showing us what your name sounds like on the drum? Oh. And then as a facilitator, you ask after they drum their name, do you mind if the group drums your name with you? So right from the get-go, yeah. just that exercise. And as a facilitator, I just, and, and a musician, 
I just loved learning this protocol because what a beautiful way of, of a sonic affirmation of every person's identity. Mm, yes. And then there's the whole element of like the neuropsychological processing that goes beyond just uh, using your intellect, drumming together. The mirroring, the resonance. Yeah. Yes, so much, so much happening. And when someone's drumming to what you created. Exactly. What you shared of your, yourself. Wow. It reminds me of something that's been very healing for me is tuning into either my own or a piece of my ancestor that I perceive mm. what their soul song is or what my soul song is. And however that sounds or what my soul dance is, like with the movement that might come through that really speaks to me. And I love, I love this exercise with the drums, with your name. It's beautiful. Whoa, that's so cool. Candice, I'm going to have to steal it. Go for it. it. I, I might steal yours as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Right, of course. Hey, man, there's that phrase in the blues, if you like it, steal it. Exactly. And you know what? I was thinking you might, <laughs> I know it kind of sounds stupid, but <laughs> you might be starting to call your drum circles drum use. Drum use. Ooh. Drum use. Yeah. Like the U shape. But All then right. it sounds a little awkward, right? No, no. I'm 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 I already I'm already playing it. <laughs> no, I like it. Trying to figure um, it out. Yeah, I'm trying to figure that one out. But um no, that sounds great. After reading that article, it made me think of instead of drum circles, absolutely the drum use, which leaves an open space. And also, yeah. I at the last multicultural summit I came, I went to in January. There was a, an indigenous woman that was talking about indigenous practices uh, in Canada, and mm -hmm. she was and and healing work. And she was talking about how important it is to not just be face to face with somebody, to sort of be adjacent to somebody. For a couple of reasons. One is to allow yourself to not necessarily absorb entirely another person's energy, but always to remind mm -hmm. yourself that there's you, the, the other person, but there's the earth that's the whole, that's holding the two of you. And so that oh. you kind of almost goes along with that, that notion of like, you know, we're not just enclosed in this circle, but we're, there's that sort of acknowledgement of that, that fourth side or whatever, however you want to describe that. Yeah. I love that, especially the earth that's holding you as that resource that's always there, the connection. Absolutely. Beautiful. So I told you that one exercise just real quick. The um, mm -hmm. I, have, I was able to do a workshop with some colleagues and artist friends of mine for YWCA where it was the, the theme was reimagining uh, racial justice. And we did a drum circle format and I incorporated some of this work, um, you know, some of the Remo Health Rhythms Protocol, some of what the band members do and what they bring to the table. And being in a space where you're playing music together and also being insistent, you know, in terms of the facilitation questions mm -hmm. about our own growing edge around issues of oppression about parts of ourselves that, you know, are still hung up on aspects of this work that are underworked or that we really need to work on. To me, it's mm -hmm. so powerful that phrase breaking bread together, 
So, you know, a different analogy is like, you know, when you make music together and then you're more open and then you have these conversations. Mm -hmm. I, it's been my experience that we can go a lot further when we have opened things up in this way and we played together musically. It, it still ta- it requires, I think, um, some heavy duty facilitating because, you know, somebody still might not say, they might still might say something or do something that's really ignorant or like have a part of them that's really dealing with some hateful, ignorant stuff. But mm-hmm. creating a space where we can address that, I think, is really important. And I appreciate you know, what, what the drums do in that setting when we do it with a lot of care. I really appreciate that you're, you're highlighting this and how you're bringing that experience to so many places. It makes so much sense to bring a coming together experience that anyone can access, a language we can all feel into. And then going into the harder thing gives so much more grounding and resource to the thing you want to perhaps tackle together that might be more uncomfortable. Exactly. But again, Candace, it goes back to the humility and the accountability and the mutual accountability where Mm -hmm. if I truly am living by that notion of like, you know, it could be you calling me out on another issue. You know, it's not coming with this holier than thou. Like, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I often find myself that I've thought about certain things a lot longer and harder than other people have. But when I think of all the the jackass things I've said and done and and still, <laughs> you know, and, and, and painful reminders that it's an ongoing process for me, um, it's hard for me to feel genuine in, in saying, well, here I am, the expert, and you need to tune up. Yeah. And that's the end of the story, you know? Um is there a way we can right. be insistent with, with – and, you know, if somebody's going to put up their walls of defensiveness, hostility, shame, other forms of resistance, that's on them. But I'm going to let them know that I'm coming at them with a great deal of respect. But again, insistence at the same time. Well, it just makes me think about the idea that if we disconnect from parts of ourselves, like a past self that has – been a jackass or whatever, or maybe has been ignorant or even parts of ourselves now and just go from one part of ourselves, we can be really arrogant. Absolutely. Or holier than thou, as you said, you know, but if we are embracing of all, if we can, you know, many parts as we can, it's like, how can you possibly come with disrespect or feeling better than? someone else because we've all we're all human we've all been there in some way in some format exactly thank you so much for sharing today i i just i love hearing that you're from michigan i'm from michigan too Woo-hoo. i don't know if you knew that yeah where michigan uh i grew up in rochester oh cool yeah so in some ways we've had a similar crossover of immigration mm-hmm. to Michigan and the feeling of it would have been cooler to be born somewhere else. I can resonate with that too. But now that you're, I know you're from Michigan, it's even better <laughs> to be from Michigan. <laughs> hey. um, but yeah, 
Well, is there anything else you want to share today? Is there anything else that's bringing you alive right now? I think this is it. Maybe if you don't mind while you're rolling the credits, haha, with this audio podcast, I'll I'll maybe yes, uh, uh, just play another short something. I'd love that. Yeah, I'm just going to sit and listen and then credits can roll later if we want it to cross over. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> or there may silence might be great with it. Right? Mm-hmm. Listen, thank you so much Candice. It was it was really uh it was so much fun talking to you. It was so much fun talking to you too and thank you for all the wisdom you shared and just your energy and um I appreciate you. Thanks. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I love these questions that Rahul is asking. How can we insist on belonging? How can we create more spaces where we can bring more of ourselves? And what do we do to have the difficult conversations? How can we play with it and connect on different levels? Thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to thank Rahul for bringing his life and his sitar and his music and the beauty in him and sharing that with us today. It's truly a special thing to be able to invite my teachers on the show because they have influenced me. Just being in their presence gives me an energetic download of new information, of love, of new ideas and ways of being that I've taken in along the way. So I thank Rahul for that and for being part of my own journey. I appreciate you joining us to connect in on this beauty and to enjoy this with me. It's such a treat to have this music on the show and I hope you enjoy this tail end of the show where we just spotlight Rahul's music in this improvisational, creative, lively moment. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. And if you'd like to know more about the podcast or receive self-love notes and newsletters and information from me, feel free to connect up with me on my website at candicewu.com slash embody. See you next time on the Embody podcast. <laughs>